0: Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church online. If you're new, welcome. If not, welcome back. Today we're in chapter five of our series, The Story, which is the chapter on the laws and the commandments. Uh, But before we get to the laws and commandments, we're gonna talk about something different. We're gonna talk about weddings and how they've functioned in the ancient biblical world. So I wanna pick a hypothetical character and call him Joshua. Josh has just come of age. He's at the point where he's ready to take the next step and get married. So the whole uh, mishpaha, the family, the entire household, gets together. You're talking about uncles, aunts, cousins, everyone in the family. Think uh, Big Fat Greek Wedding. You think of uh, Tula Portakalas, who had it really bad in that movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. This is worse. uh, This whole uh, The whole mishpaha lived in the same family dwelling. Uh, they would share everything and just uh, keep adding on additions onto the house. So life was very, very, very communal. So when uh, Joshua wants to get married, everyone in the family comes together to discuss it and give their recommendations uh, and suggestions. So let's say Josh uh, gets his say too. It's not like uh, they're not going to disagree with him. They're going to hear him out. They're not trying to be mean and shut him out. So uh the wedding is arranged, but they're not trying to be rigid and unreasonable. So it's just a community decision because you would never want to make a decision uh, like that to, and leave it up to one person, one individual that could be driven by their emotions or their hormones or every, anything else like that. So you uh, you might be in a culture where they make these kind of decisions based on uh, you know like falling in love, and then then what happens when you fall out of love? as if love is something that you can fall out of. It just raises all kinds of issues. So the community works together to make this make this really important decision together. So let's say they finally agree that Miriam would make a great match for Josh. So he and his dad pick up all their stuff. They trek over to Miriam's village, which could be miles away. And when they get there, Josh's father goes up to Miriam's father and says, Hey, we've, we've heard that Miriam has recently come of age and that Josh has too. We think they would make a great union if they were married. What do you think? And usually these things were somewhat prearranged, like the dads had already been talking, so it wasn't like a total surprise. So Miriam's family would then do the same thing that Josh's family did, go and talk and then come back and give their answer. And they say they think this is a great idea. And so Joshua's dad grabs his pack. He takes this little cup, this little wooden cup. he pours some wine in the cup and he hands it to Josh. Josh then hands the cup to Rebecca and he says this, this is the cup of a new covenant that I make with you today. I will not drink of this cup again until I drink with you in my father's house. And I'm hoping you see the significance of this phrase. In Matthew 26 verse 27, uh, Jesus is with his disciples during their Passover meal together and the passage says this, he took a cup of wine and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you, my father's kingdom. Seriously, what is Jesus doing here? This is a phrase all of his followers would have associated with a groom making a solemn vow to his future wife. So if she pushes the cup away and doesn't drink, she's basically saying no. But if she takes the cup and drinks from it, she says yes. Except there isn't a single historical record of a woman saying no to a marriage proposal, mainly because it would have been like spitting in the face of her entire Mishpaha, her family. So theoretically, she could reject the cup, but there's no record of this. So after she accepts, they have this little mini party. And then Josh and his dad, they head back home. And what happens next is really important. Josh now has a job to do. He's got to build an extension, a room or rooms, onto his father's house. It could be off to the side or it could be up above, wherever it is. The point is that he's going to go prepare a place for his bride because she's coming home to live with him. He may even say this to her before he leaves after the mini party. Like, I'm going home to do this, which is interesting, right? Because in John 14, when Jesus is on the scene in the New Testament, he says this, In my father's house." many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also." Now the father is the one who decides when this will happen in our little hypothetical scenario, and he is the one who gives final approval that the addition is satisfactory and complete. So he might be hard on the son. He might nitpick or make him start over a few times he won't. He's not going to allow any shortcuts. Or he may actually lend a hand and help his son actually build it. Well, finally one day the father's going to come up to the son. He's going to say, "I think it's time for you to get married. I think you finished with the add-on." And it's at this point that the entire family has to pack everything up, go get ready uh, at, at Miriam's and to go to Miriam's village for the wedding. And meanwhile, Miriam and her family could be surprised by the arrival of Joshua and his family at any time. The process of building the add-on could take weeks, it could take months, or years. Whenever the groom arrives, Miriam's job is to be ready at a moment's notice. She doesn't know when he's going to show up. And there are all kinds of parallels here again. I mean, Jesus says in the New Testament, in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13, I don't know the time of my of my return, only the Father in heaven knows that. So it doesn't matter when the lookout will be watching. And when he sees when he sees Joshua's family on the horizon, words gonna spell like spread like wildfire uh, that Miriam uh, around Miriam's village that she needs to get ready. People are gonna drop everything they're doing and get ready. So everything comes to a screeching halt. Uh, everybody runs off to get ready for the ceremony. Miriam is uh, whisked away to do this ritual bathing process and participate in what's called consecration. And then the ceremony can begin. So to mark the beginning of the ceremony, someone in the family is going to blow a ram's horn, a shofar. The couple will gather uh, under what's called the, the chuppah, uh, which is a canopy that is kind of like a mini tabernacle. It symbolizes the presence of God. And so as a couple, uh, they stand in the presence of God under the chuppah while they exchange vows to establish a covenant uh, for their life together, and the vows are called a ketuvah, uh the marriage covenant, which is, which has always been written by the groom. The ketubah would have had a list of maybe seven to twelve things on it that the groom wants the marriage relationship to be defined by. And so here are some things that are true. He's kind of basically saying, here's some things that are true of me that I hope to be true about me, and here's some things that I hope to be true of you, or I see are true of you. And this is our marriage covenant. And when the ceremony ends the fathers have already come to an agreement on what the bride price will be in this ancient biblical culture. And the bride price is exchanged in the form of wedding gifts, usually goats or sheep or some other form of inheritance. And then immediately after the wedding, the bride and the groom need to consummate the marriage. That's right. There's no diving off into the sunset, you know, uh, anywhere, going to a fancy resort or whatever, because none of that existed back then. So There is a room, a special room, uh, specially set aside for this to happen right after the wedding ceremony. Everybody knows where they're going. And afterward, the entire wedding party will throw this absolutely massive celebration, just an epic party, sometimes lasting for a week. But get this, after the party's over and things go back to normal and the bride and the groom go to their new addition at the groom's family's house, they just get to sit back and relax for a year, for a year. For real, one year free of all communal expectations and responsibilities. Uh, That's what I call a honeymoon, my friends. I mean, nothing for a year, no work, no chores. And the point of this is not just rest, but it's supposed to be a calm space of time where all they do is get to know each other for a year. And that's good. And, And it's important because remember, they probably didn't even know each other that well. There's even a good chance they didn't even know each other at all. If you're the bride, he just showed up one day. He fills his cup with wine, says, you're the one. You say yes. He leaves. He comes back. Wedding, consummation, party. Ah, Hello, that's it. So you have the whole next year to get to know each other. The Jews will say that you use that year to learn how to love your spouse. Because you don't just fall in love. It's not based on fleeting emotions. It's not based on romance. Because remember, the family came around to you to make a decision. And you're in community. You are not an island unto yourself. Now, what is the point of all this preface talk about marriages? Well, we just talked about the Exodus last week, and now we are with Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai, and God is doing something different with these people. And what I want you to see is that what happens here with the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments is very much like a marriage with wedding vows, and God referring to Israel multiple times as his bride along with the elements I just described to you from an ancient Jewish wedding. So remember, God made a promise to Abram generations ago. When that story began, God said to Abram at the beginning, Abram, I need you to leave your father's mishpaha and come to a land that I will show you. That's the exact same formula we see when a son leaves his father's household to find a wife. So God's words to Abram are like the proposal a groom and his father would give to the bride and her family. And so By the time we get to Exodus and the law, the Ten Commandments, and even into Leviticus, you start to realize that what's happening at Mount Sinai, it looks like a marriage covenant. And through that lens, we can see how the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now with the entire nation of Israel, we see it's an engagement story. God leaves for about 430 years, and while he's gone, he goes to prepare a place for them. Just like when Joshua left to prepare a place for Miriam in our example, and then God comes back and multiple times in the Torah, it says, it says, I've come to take you as my treasured possession. It's like in Exodus 19, 5, Deuteronomy 7 and 14. Exodus 19, verse 3 says, then Moses went up to God, up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. Now I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So that word, the word treasured possession, that's marriage talk. That's what the groom calls the bride on the day of the marriage ceremony. And and don't get caught up on the possession thing. That's an ancient patriarchal deal. What you should get hung up on is the treasured part. Well, then in Exodus 19.10, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and one of God's first words to Moses is, go down and consecrate the Israelites. Uh, If you're reading along in our storybook, that's on page 60. But Wait a minute. You have this. You have this consecration part of the wedding. So Moses goes down and he tells them what to do, and they consecrate themselves in verses ten through thirteen. And then, that, and then the text even tells us this is where uh, the people of Israel hear a particular sound that starts the ceremony, and it's the blast from the shofar, the ram's horn trumpet. And immediately after that, they're covered in a cloud in verse sixteen, which symbolizes the presence of God, which would have been your hoopah. And then finally, in Exodus 32, Moses comes down the mountain with two tablets that have some things written on them. What are those tablets? Well, that's it's the ketuva. It's the marriage covenant. So let's take a look at that for a second. Because most of you have heard the Ten Commandments before, or you know some of them, you know, but you can turn to them uh, in Exodus chapter 20, or if you're doing the story uh, series with us, it's on page 61 of that book. But I want you to hear hear the Ten Commandments, not as a list of rules, but as a marriage covenant. So follow along with me in your Bible or in the story. I want you to hear them the way that I think they were given originally, the way they would be in a marriage covenant. I am your husband. I am your lover. You are to have no other lovers other than me. Treat me with respect. Don't slander my name in public, in the marketplace. Set aside a day for a date night, some time to spend together every week. Be happy and satisfied with the life that I have given you. Don't hurt yourself. Don't murder. Protect your sexuality. Don't take things that aren't yours. Tell the truth about yourself. And when all is said and done, don't want anybody else's life. Just be satisfied with the life that you and I have together. That's it. It's a marriage covenant. No wonder the Jews have referred to the law that's contained in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as their wedding gifts, their bride price, because they are a gift. God keeps reminding his people, if you love me, you will obey me. He says it in Exodus 19.5, right before calling them a kingdom of priests, he says it again in the middle of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 6. And I think it's very interesting because Jesus, Jesus comes along centuries later and says some very, very similar stuff about this. In John 14:15, he says, If you love me, you'll obey my commandments, my mitzvah. He he follows it up in John 15:9 when he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. What I want you to see is obedience is not really about rules. It's not just something that you check off the list because God said you better or else. No, 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 no. What's really going on here is that obedience is God's love language. He says, when you obey my commands, I feel loved. Because that's what a covenant relationship is like. So Jesus says, that's how I know you love me, if you obey me, if you follow the covenant. Well, the next thing, the progression of the story for the people of God is that they are in the desert, which is kind of like, you know, that honeymoon period. You know, there's, great, there's this great verse in Jeremiah 2.2 Jeremiah 2, where God basically says, I remember when you followed me through the desert with devotion like a bride this bride language is all throughout the scriptures. So the people of God are in the desert just waiting together with God. They are getting to know each other. They haven't spent a lot of time together up until now, and now they're on their honeymoon period where they have time to spend together. Now, all of this, if you've been tracking with us through this series, all of this should raise a lot of questions for you. Why is God using this language of marriage and all this symbolism with this entire group of Hebrew people? Uh, what's, what's the thing behind the thing? Is this really about something deeper? And the answer is, of course, yeah, it is. Remember, this whole story of God creating a people who would put him on display started way back with Abram. And ever since then, he's been looking for a partner who's going to be on mission with him, putting the world back together. So right before he gives the Ketuvah, the marriage vows, the Ten Commandments, he says to his people in Exodus 19, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, in other words, if you'll enter into marriage with me, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. You're going to be like my wife. And, Here's why I'm looking for a spouse. Here's why I'm looking for a wife. It then says, all whole, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, this idea of being a kingdom of priests is, is, is not vague or nebulous. God spells out the duties of the priests for this nation of Le- in Leviticus, which I'm sure you have, you've all read Leviticus, <laughs> right? Probably not. And the last part of that book is all about how you're going to be a priest because you're, you're not going to... Eat pork, you're not gonna sow types of seed in the field, you're you're not gonna wear clothes that, that are even made out of two different types of fabric. Uh, but the point of all that is he wants his people to fulfill this role, not just the priests, not just Jesus, not just pastors or ministers. He wants everyone who follows God to be putting God on display. Well, here, here's a picture of how Leviticus says a priest should look. (laughs) It's a picture of what a, you know, a depiction of what an Old Testament priest should look like. Look at this guy. He's, he's literally like just, he's got blinged out. He's, he looks like he's got fruitcake on his chest. God gave this rule in the middle of the desert for a priest to look different. Priests look different. You know what the word for different is? It's set apart. The word in Hebrew is kadosh. Kadosh means holy. That's what holy means to be different, to be set apart. In the Sermon on the Mount, on in Matthew five, verse forty-eight, Jesus quotes the book of Leviticus when he says, "Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect." And a lot probably if you if you look that verse up, it would your version of the Bible would say that word perfect, but that's not what it says. It actually says. Be holy, therefore, as your heavenly Father is holy. The word here is actually be set apart. Be different, because I am different. I am set apart. And that's what God is calling you and I to be. That's that's the first part of what a priest does. We're set apart. We're holy. We're different. The second role of the priest is that they help people navigate their atonement how they get clean. So people would come to the tabernacle with their sacrifice because something has happened. They've either done something or someone's done something to them and they are now unclean. And atonement means you have to repent to be reconciled for the wrong things you've done. The priest would walk the person through the process of what they were doing with the blood of the sacrifice whatever animal they're using. And most importantly, they would explain to that person that when they leave there, they're good with God. And when it's all over, when it's all said and done, you and God are good. So you leave here, the book of Hebrew tells us, with a clean conscience. That's what this is all about. That's the second role of a priest, helping people navigate this process of atonement, of becoming righteous and clean in the eyes of God. And the third role is that a priest intercedes on behalf of others. So if God is here and the Israelites are down here, then the priest sits in the middle, and the and the priest speaks both directions he speaks to the people on behalf of god but he also speaks to god on behalf of the people a very priestly statement would sound something like this forgive them god for they don't know what they're doing moses on mount sinai is like hey look look don't hurt them don't do anything to them cut them some slack that's the role of a priest interceding on behalf of others and finally The fourth thing, the the priest distributes resources on behalf of the oppressed. So there are the haves and the have-nots, and there always have been. There are people who have extra, and then there are people who don't. And everybody, the haves and the have-nots in this Hebrew worldview, they all give 10%, and it all goes to the temple. But then there are people who have extra, and they give even more And and it goes to the temple and the people who don't have enough come to the temple and the priest takes some of the extra and gives it to those who don't have enough. Because that just makes sense. That makes a ton of sense in God's economy. That, That we would take the extra and we would constantly be trying to get things back to their Genesis 1 reality where everyone has enough. And so that's one of the four roles of the priest as well. If only God had called a group of people to do all this then we wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't need nonprofits or government or GoFundMe. If all followers of Jesus on the planet lived this way, it would usher in a whole new reality in this world that we live in. Some of you might be saying, but wait, isn't this all Old Testament stuff? Is this what Jesus was asking us to do? Is this what the disciples understood they were to be taking part in? I think it's clear that it was. The Apostle Peter actually quotes directly from the passage we read today from Exodus 19. Here, take a look, just take a look at 1 Peter 2 9. It says this But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. God has always been and still is looking for a bride, for a purpose, for a reason. This would be our calling today as well. We are a kingdom of priests. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, This is the legacy Jesus calls us into. And yes, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, but our calling is the same. He has still set us apart as his special possession, his treasured possession, to put him on display. We're basically supposed to be walking billboards. So that's the question. How are you going to put God on display? How will you look different? What do you do that's different, that makes you stand out so that God stands out? Do you tell people they're evil or shun them? Or do you help them navigate their atonement? Do you separate yourself from those who are not like you? Or do you intercede on the behalf of everyone you know and meet? Do you stand in the gap and pray and plead and live out that anybody can come to the table and take some bread and some juice? Do you only look to your own interests? Do you have the mentality of scarcity Instead of a mentality of provision. Because I'll tell you truthfully, we serve a God who provides. So, are we distributing resources to the oppressed? Because some have too much and others don't have enough. So, wouldn't it just make sense if we, the people of God, were generous to a fault? Unbelievably generous. God is putting the world back together. God is looking for partners. Our you interested i'm worth wheeler for west seattle christian online stay rooted and deep in jesus and produce good fruit my friends